Hello, and welcome back to Tectonic, a podcast that looks at the way technology is changing our lives. I'm John Thornhill, Innovation Editor at the Financial Times in London. Last week, we heard from Mike Cagney, Chief Executive of SoFi, an online lender specialising in refinancing student loans for high-income millennials. This week, our guest is the Director of Civil Liberties at Stanford Law School's Centre for Internet and Society. I believed that the laws we had on the books explained to us what kind of surveillance our government was actually doing. And one of the most shocking and dismaying things we learned from Snowden was that the government was doing things that we had no idea about and that seemed on their face completely illegal. That was Jennifer Granick. She started her career as a criminal defense attorney before specializing in internet law. She spoke to the FT's Hannah Kushler about government surveillance and how it could change under a Trump administration. So Jennifer, I read your book, American Spies, Modern Surveillance, Why You Should Care and What You Can Do About It. And one of the parts that made me laugh was when you started to talk about the early days practicing law in the 1990s, when you said that a judge asked you what cut and paste was, thinking you were talking about scissors and sticky glue and using it to copy something. I just wanted to ask, how did you get into this position of playing such a crucial role so early on teaching the legal system about technology? As it says in the book, you know, I was a criminal defense attorney for many years, and I started um, being interested in representing people who were charged with computer crimes. And so I began to study computer security and get up to speed on what the federal computer crime laws were and that sort of thing. And whenever I was dealing with cases that involved technology, I just realized there was just this huge cultural gap between judges and prosecutors and police officers and technologists about what technology really was in the modern time. So I was super interested in that and really interested in the civil liberties aspects of it. In 2001, I got hired hired at Stanford to teach the new cyber law clinic that was being directed by Larry Lessig. And that's how I kind of started to make the switch from being a criminal defense lawyer into being a teacher and a researcher on these issues. And so the moment when for the rest of us, I think online surveillance just burst onto the public consciousness was undoubtedly the revelations in 2013 about NSA mass surveillance by Edward Snowden. You were already very engaged in this world. What did you learn from them? Was there was there big surprises or was it a confirmation of what you thought was going on all along? I was surprised. I mean, I think other people who are experts in this field will tell you, oh, we knew this all along or whatever, but we did not. I, I didn't know it all along. And maybe that's because I'm not cynical enough. But I believed that the laws we had on the books explained to us what kind of surveillance our government was actually doing. And one of the most shocking and dismaying things we learned from Snowden was that the government was doing things that we had no idea about and that seemed on their face completely illegal. So we learned about the telephone metadata dragnet, a collection in bulk of every American's phone calling records, who calls you, who you're calling. And that is just not authorized under our law. And the law, the statute that the intelligence community pointed to was this um, law we call Section 215, which was part of the USA Patriot Act. And Section 215 very clearly said you can collect information that's relevant 
to a counterterrorism investigation not involving Americans. Well, how could everything be relevant to a particular counterterrorism investigation? And yet, behind the scenes, some judges had in the secretive FISA court had made up their minds that it was okay and were letting this bulk collection go forward under that legal provision. So that was pretty shocking to find out how disassociated reality was from the law. And as a lawyer, that's just so upsetting that like the thing you you spend your time doing, which is studying and learning about the law, might actually just be a lie. Yeah, and and you know, you presumably had developed critiques as it existed, and suddenly that was kind of I don't want to sorry, but pointless. Yeah, totally. I mean, everybody was so worried about Section 215 because when it was passed, it expanded the categories of records that investigators could get. And people were very concerned that like library records and bookstore records would be part of what they could get. And this is very private information, what you read. And so Section 215 was referred to by civil libertarians as the library records provision because that's what we were worried about. Little did we know (laughs) that what we had to be worried about was bulk collection on all Americans about our phone records. Mm -hmm. So that was really, you know, pretty terrible. I think our suspicions were confirmed about how a certain warrantless wiretapping program inside the United States targeting foreigners actually had a huge impact, has a huge impact on Americans. That's the program under Section 702 and is the PRISM program that Snowden revealed, those documents and subsequent reporting really confirmed what civil libertarians had been saying about that section all along, which is that even though facially it's targeting foreigners in practice, it implicates American privacy to a large extent. And I think we also learned the ways in which the intelligence community was using other legal provisions overseas to collect data that it couldn't collect in the United States that we thought we had protected. Right. So one of those instances was the muscular program. And this was a collaboration with the British spy agency, GCHQ, to tap the interconnection between Google and Yahoo when email was exchanged and tap the cables for internal moving around of data inside of Google. And there was this like slide that was published, this like yellow post-it note that showed sort of a hand-drawn diagram of the Google network and how it connected to the external internet and where the encryption was added and pointed out how the tapping was happening before the encryption was added. And basically, I think that was a real shock to find out that there were all kinds of ways that the NSA was able to get around encryption or break encryption in order to do massive surveillance overseas. And wasn't there a little smiley face drawn, you know, where they discovered that they could could get into unencrypted data? And yeah. I think that smiley face was probably the most expensive emoji to a lot of people in tech <laughs> has ever seen. Yeah, I think so. The quotes that, you know, came out of the Google engineers after they saw that little smiley face were pretty colorful. Yeah, definitely. And so we're now four years on from the Snowden revelations, almost at least. How do you think the NSA has responded? Is there anything we can praise them for? Yeah, I mean, I think that the intelligence community definitely took the lesson that there was too much secrecy. And I think they rightly decided that they needed to be more transparent about certain things. I think that they have not um, fully achieved the results of that insight the actual transparency 
efforts have been pretty milquetoast and pretty very mild. Um, but they do now release some documents and tell the public more stuff. But, you know, there there's a lot more that they could do to help people truly understand what's going on. And I think a little bit the idea that the IC kind of picks and chooses which things they're going to tell us and what kind of reports they're going to put forward or what kind of documents they're going to release as part of these transparency efforts makes it feel a little bit one-sided as opposed to complete. So I think we really still need to have some regulation that says that there's going to be a lot less secrecy. We're not going to have secret law. People aren't going, wouldn't be surprised knowing what the IC is doing. And, you know, we're going to be able to have an understanding of what our rights are and what our responsibilities are. If you were in the intelligence community, you would argue that, of course, we can't be completely transparent about everything we do. We are, by our very nature, a secretive operation and that, that actually protects the U.S. I mean, what do you say when people argue that? Yeah, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. I think that argument is totally right. And certainly, you know, we don't have a public interest in knowing at a particular point in time who exactly is being spied on, you know, or what's happening. But what we do have to know is what our law means. We, their secret law is just absolutely anathema to democracy. Like you cannot have secret law. So we have to know what their general capabilities are and how those capabilities are, are regulated. And we have to have some idea of what they're doing in terms of, you know, some amount of knowing what the methods are so we can make decisions about whether those are things that we think, A, are in the public interest and B, are things we want America to be, to be actually doing. So there is completely a role, a place for secrecy, but we are so far over on the wrong side of that line right now. You talk in your book about what you call NSA doublespeak and how the part of this secrecy around the, around the law is that there is very different interpretations of the kinds of words that on the face of it look like everyday language and what we would have quite a broad interpretation of and that they have decided to interpret in a very strict way which then allows them to survey more. I mean, do you have any examples of that? Yeah, I mean, the Section 215 program is one great example. We have a statute that says information has to be relevant and it's allowing the bulk collection of everything. So that's a very strange interpretation of relevance. You have the PRISM program that operates under Section 702, which says that it has to target foreigners, but the target isn't like who you're necessarily listening to. It's what you want to know about, the person or the organization you want to know about. Yeah, so that means that if you have two Americans talking to each other about a foreigner, that could be surveyed. It actually, the technologically, that's something that has been happening is that um, two Americans who talk about the foreigner, if the selector that describes the foreigner is in our conversations, then our conversations could be picked up. And it's kind of unclear what the rules are about the ability to use that information once it's picked up. It should be destroyed because it's a purely domestic communication, but the minimization rules have changed over time and it's not exactly clear how they're handled. They also collect. What does collect mean? Director of National Intelligence Clapper said in a hearing at one point that there's a you know special meaning of collect and it doesn't mean to gather. It means when a human being looks at it. 
So if the statutes govern collection, then basically the idea would be you can do whatever you want. You can gather everything. Um, and then the laws that try to make sure that civil liberty safeguards are applied and that the information isn't abused only applies when a human looks at it. Computers can analyze it. It can be grabbed. But, you know, and I don't think that's what most people think <laughs> of collect no. as meaning. Um, and then, you know, they talk about incidental collection. And when people hear the word incidental collection, you think, well, there's a couple incidents in which there's been a collection of Americans' communications. But actually, incidental collection of Americans' communications happens all the time under these provisions. When we're talking with the foreign target, we are being wiretapped. So the law is basically saying Americans who talk to these foreign targets we're interested in can be warrantlessly wiretapped. That's not what the law seems to say, but that's actually what the law means. I think minimize is another term. When you hear that the information has to be minimized, I think a lot of people think about it as meaning you're limiting what you're collecting. But in the foreign intelligence context, you can collect very, very broadly, and the minimization rules are mostly about the ways that information can be used, and only a little bit about the ways in which the information has to be destroyed. So... Bearing in mind that there is, one, a lack of transparency and two, some confusion over the interpretations of, of different words that are used in the laws, how would you assess how, how much the NSA has dialed back anything since 2013 or have they gone further in some ways? I don't think we've seen um, substantive dialing back except under force. So Congress passed a law to modify Section 215, the USA Freedom Act, and that was an effort to stop the bulk phone collection. And as far as we know, that bulk phone collection by the NSA and the FBI has stopped. But that was because that was what Congress mandated. In the other programs, we're not seeing rolling back necessarily with one major exception and then a major exception to that exception. So President Obama issued a presidential policy directive that was for non-Americans, for foreigners, giving foreigners some rights under U.S. surveillance law and basically saying, we are going to treat you um, similarly to the way that we treat Americans and we're not going to misuse the data we collect about you for political oppression or for like corporate espionage to favor U.S. companies or for those sorts of things. I think that's that's meaningful because it's the first time that our law has said to non-citizens living elsewhere, you know, we care. <laughs> but I think substantively, the provisions, the protections in that presidential policy directive are pretty weak. I mean, they're basically saying we can still use all this information for foreign intelligence, and foreign intelligence is still extremely broad. And then just recently, in this early part of January, President Obama issued a modification to the executive order under which um, much of our foreign intelligence collection happens, particularly the collection that affects foreigners. And that's the executive order 12333. And the new provisions in 12333 allow raw data, so unminimized data that contains people's names, private information, all of that, allows this raw data to be more broadly shared throughout the intelligence community. Um, so basically, instead of it going out to different agencies on a need-to-know basis, far more people have access to the, to the raw data. And what do you think of that? I wonder why you would do that before the Trump administration comes in. 
it just seems to me to be a real step backward. Well, I, I wanted to talk to you, obviously, about the Trump administration. I mean, what do you think happens to mass surveillance under Trump? Have we actually had any clear indication of a policy from him? No, um, I don't think that we really know uh, what the Trump administration will do, but we have some inkling based on Trump's comments in connection with the Apple versus FBI fight over whether Apple should be obligated to be able to decrypt iPhones. Um, And I think we also have some sense based on the records of the gentleman that Trump has been appointing. Giuliani has a very pro-law enforcement background. Sessions also is very strong. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. And, um, you know, more surveillance on the part of the government. So, you know, I think we see in the leadership there a real sense that, you know, we're not super concerned about the rights of activists or um, journalists or, you know, the, the, the kinds of communities that we worry about and that we worry about surveillance on the behalf of. There's not a lot of concern about those constituencies coming from the Trump leadership. Those are really important roles, right? Jeff Sessions is going to be attorney general, you know, which oversees the Department of Justice, which makes a lot of key decisions about the law, obviously. And Rudy Giuliani is going to be overseeing cybersecurity, which is very closely linked to surveillance. And in your book, you call for a public investigation into spies and stronger regulation. And do you think that's less likely now under a Trump administration? I think it probably is less likely, if only because there's so many other really important issues now that are thrown into the political spotlight. You know, things that we thought were settled like healthcare or, you know, nuclear proliferation, climate change, (laughs) all of these things are now back on the political table. But I, I think that the Republican Party has a very strong civil libertarian wing. And as libertarians, they are as concerned, can be as concerned as, you know, Democrats are about the proliferation of unreasonable surveillance. The fact that the Congress is now, both houses are Republican, I don't think that means that nobody's interested in civil liberties and surveillance anymore. I think there are probably, you know, still a very strong coalition of um, lawmakers who are concerned about government overreach in this area. And you mentioned the Apple FBI case, which was obviously a sort of huge conflict at the beginning of last year, where we saw the FBI try and ask Apple to basically hack into the iPhone of one of the San Bernardino killers. And um, it was it was a real test, I guess, for tech companies that have stressed the importance of encryption often, but this was a time when they were very publicly being asked to do something which a lot of people across the country thought might be fair enough because it had a national security element. Do you think that 
that is when we see uh, sort of Trump confronting the issue of encryption, that it isn't something that he comes in and puts on the, you know, puts on the table or signs an executive order. And but, but when we see the next terrorist attack and someone wants to get into an iPhone, that he supports the law enforcement there. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's probably what we'll see. I don't think we're likely to see legislation that mandates encryption backdoors, but there's that soft power you know, that the government can exercise either as sort of a moral force or as a purchaser, you know, on companies. And I think Trump probably way more than other presidents we've had might be willing to, you know, punish companies who don't go along with what the administration's position ends up being on encryption. So I think we could very well see a lot of that soft pressure, or we might not see it. It might be the kind of thing that sort of happens behind the scenes. Ultimately, though, these tech companies are answerable not just to the American public and to the U.S. government, but to their customers around the world. And so they have to be concerned about the security of their products in a global marketplace where, you know, other countries don't have the same safeguards or civil liberties or First Amendment or whatever that we have, and they need to be thinking about those customers and those political realities as well. So it's one challenge for the for the companies, but they've got a lot of challenges. Yeah, I mean, we saw after the NSA revelations that the you know tech companies very much spoke out against the the surveillance, um, especially ones actually rather than the consumer names some of the enterprise names that were selling to businesses you know and lots of countries like Germany looked at you know creating their own laws to try and protect their own businesses and consumers Cisco for example was one of the companies that spoke out because there had been sort of some photos where it looked like their their devices were being tampered with how much of that do you think was kind of public relations and how much do you think was a, a sort of real horror that will last through anything that the Trump administration could say about them? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. And I think it's hard to to speak about the industry kind of generally, because I think different companies have different business models. Some are business facing and some are public facing. And even among the public facing ones, they have different products and what those products mean and who they think their main customers are. But I do think that the tech companies have taken major strides to try to get people out of the position of being subject to massive surveillance, by which I mean suspicionless without a warrant, right? Opportunistic surveillance. You know, you look at after things came out with the post-it with the smiley face, you know, Google and Yahoo started to encrypt those data flows. And you see this widespread adoption of HTTPS, web uh, transfer encryption. So, you know, you were starting to see companies sort of unilaterally be able to deploy these things. Plus, we're seeing this real uptick in people who like products like Signal or WhatsApp, where end-to-end encryption is built in as part of the part of what the product is. So I think that the industry has done a lot overall in terms of security. I mean, Cisco, I've heard they now route their, they ship their routers differently in order to try to avoid the possibility that they'll be intercepted and tampered with on the way to the customer. On the other hand, though, in the political front, I think the companies have a difficult line to walk and they, you know, don't want to alienate their regulators here in the United States, um, but they also don't want to alienate their customers overseas who don't get a lot of the protections or rights under U.S. law that Americans get even as many Americans feel like the protections we get are too weak already. So they're kind of walking that that balance and they have their trade groups that 
um, you know, participate in those conversations. But we haven't seen companies come out strongly and say, you know, we shouldn't be doing it this way. This law is wrong. We need to change it. Yeah. It's interesting that you mention the, um, you know, people who are in countries that don't necessarily have great protections. And, and I, I take your point that you might argue the US is one of them. But obviously, big tech companies like Google and Facebook are on this push around the world to expand access to the internet that there are, you know, there are still billions of people to come online. A lot of those people that are going to come online are coming from countries where there are dictatorships or there there is a very established surveillance state. I mean, who do you think is responsible for ensuring the, the protection of people in those countries? And, and to what extent is it the big tech companies based here in Silicon Valley? Yeah, I mean, I think the answer to that is everyone. We're all responsible for making sure that as people become part of the modern day and get online and start to be able to take advantage of this unbelievable resource that these people are not victimized as a result of it. Tech companies are a major player in that. I was on a panel with Michael Chertoff, who was the former head of national security, and he was talk we were talking about the Apple versus FBI case and he was saying, you know, Apple enjoys a lot of support out here in Silicon Valley, but, you know, Apple's customers in Missouri and Mississippi aren't so happy with them. And I said, Apple's next billion customers are not in Mississippi or Missouri. They are in Latin America and Asia, you know, in these places all around the world where these countries don't have a Bill of Rights. These countries don't have a First Amendment. And so Apple has to think about those people and be responsible for their health and safety and their security as well. I think that the United States government should take that more seriously too. And certainly the Department of State has been very concerned about internet freedom and the safety and security of activists and journalists and community workers around the world. I think that that concern, um, as well as the consumer concern for security that an agency like the Federal Trade Commission advocates for, I think those concerns should be more tightly integrated with the policy decisions that we make as part of the intelligence community. We really need to make sure we're taking all of these important values into consideration. Yes, we need to do surveillance for national security purposes. Yes, we need to do foreign intelligence surveillance. Um, but we also need to protect these people. And we also need to you know, basically encourage economic development. I want to go back briefly to, to Trump, as I think we'll be uh, returning to the subject several times over the next few years. We recently heard that he um, he appointed Giuliani to oversee cybersecurity, and that he will be um, Giuliani will be arranging meetings with cybersecurity companies. It wasn't actually clear whether it was security companies, as in in the security industry, or companies who had been affected by cybersecurity, perhaps who had had breaches themselves. Which at this point feels like all companies. We've already potentially noted that Trump doesn't have a huge uh, wealth of experience when it comes to cybersecurity. Obviously, he's had to learn kind of fast with hacking becoming such a major theme in the election. What do you think that he will learn from companies if he ends up meeting with them regularly on this issue? You know, one thing I think Giuliani could learn is that, you know, security is hard and it's complicated and it's multifaceted. I think that thinking about it as a public health problem is a much more beneficial model 
than thinking about it as a law enforcement problem. Just like with public health, there's all kind of human interactions that can create disease and to spread disease. You know, as computers interconnect with each other, there's all kinds of uh, things that can happen to create botnets or to spread viruses or to, you know, create other vulnerabilities. So, you know, Giuliani's background is very law and order, but I think a purely law and order approach to the security problem is really missing most of what we could do in order to try to make people safer. And so I hope that in his investigations, you know, one thing he learns is to think about it in this broader way. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I hear the term, I hate the term, but I hear it a lot of uh, cyber hygiene and, and the idea that while we might sort of obsess over the most sophisticated cyber attacks, like your Sony pictures or your potentially the DNC, although I think getting in with the phishing attack is maybe not that sophisticated, that actually an awful lot of the attacks that companies and consumers are facing are from basic things like not patching your computer and things that are very boring to write about, but pretty important if you're doing security. Absolutely. And you know, it's funny because those of us who are in this field and pay attention, like we love when there's like a new O-Day or something like that. But the main things that are important is really to, you know, do some basic stuff. And there are people who've dedicated their lives to trying to help companies and people do these routine basics. It's a little bit like being a mom, you know, like brush your teeth, eat your vegetables and it's the same sort of thing. Keep your software updated. Use two-factor authentication. You know, make sure your passwords are secure and unique. Just some very basic things. And, you know, the studies show that you can do like a couple basic things and that would get rid of 80% of all the attacks that we see. Um, we're still going to struggle to deal with the really sophisticated, well-funded attackers. Um, there's going to be an arms race there. But for general benefit, there's low-hanging fruit that we're not taking advantage of. And we're still going to struggle if you if you have a problem with the extent of surveillance in the U.S. at the moment and in some other countries with knowing what to do as individuals. Your book has the subheading, Why You Should Care and What to Do About It. So I wanted to ask you to, to finish, what can people do if they are concerned about mass surveillance in the US? Right, well, certainly there's some things you can do for self-help in terms of securing your devices and using encrypted services and those sorts of things. But what I really want to urge people to do is to get politically involved. And we have this very unique opportunity this year because Section 702 the provision that underlies uh, PRISM and the collection of Americans' communications about foreign intelligence targets, that law is going to expire at the end of this year. And either Congress has to do something to reform or renew it, or it's going to die. So we have this great opportunity to change the way that we've been doing things and to, you know, either get rid of that law and basically go back to the, the way it's been, which is where in order to spy on somebody from inside the United States, you have to have probable cause that they're an agent of a foreign power, or to really rein in this wiretapping that affects so many Americans and target it specifically to national security, to make sure that information that's collected in the name of national security isn't repurposed for run-of-the-mill criminal stuff. So we have this we have this great opportunity. And there's a lot of organizations that are working on this effort, from the ACLU to the EFF to Access Now, CDT, whatever your favorite Internet Civil Liberties group is, we're all working 
working on it. So get on the newsletter and there'll come a time when you'll be asked to call your congressperson and tell them what you want. And when that time happens, please call your congressperson and tell them what you want. Thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us, Jennifer. Thank you for having me. We'll be back with another episode of Tectonic next week when you can hear from Stuart Russell, a professor of artificial intelligence and one of the few researchers to sound the alarm about the risks of developing this technology. If you'd like to comment on today's show or suggest any topics you'd like us to cover in future, please email us at tectonic at ft.com. This episode of Tectonic was produced by Amy Keane.